Welcome to Built to Go, a van live podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity and my van. This time it's episode 90, but it's also the very first episode that we are going to do a video of for YouTube. So, hey, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what happens. This time we're going to be talking about 10 things they don't tell you about van life when you start out. And we're going to talk about how to make ice in a moving vehicle, a tale from the road involving a truck that almost killed me, and a product review of a Hall Effect Amateur. Welcome everyone. This will be an experiment. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but we're going to give it a shot here. I am currently driving west on my way to Colorado, trying to get to Gardner, Colorado, or that area anyway for a dark sky event known as the Rocky Mountain Star Stare. It's a big event. We're going to have famous people there, somebody who actually walked on the moon. I'm kind of looking forward to it. But I have to get there first, and that involves traveling on I-80 West. And I'm currently in Illinois in a sea of corn, as much of the country is. And so I thought I would try to do video. Um, my YouTube channel is growing nicely. I thought, well, what if I could put the podcast on YouTube? And that's what we're doing here today. So I may not be looking directly at you because I'm driving and it may be crazy to try to do a podcast while driving, but lots of people do it and I'm on an interstate and there isn't that much traffic and I think it's actually fairly safe given that the cruise control is set at the speed limit and I'm on a very empty straight road. Let's talk about 10 things they don't tell you about van life. Now, I know it's popular for everyone to talk about, oh, Instagram is all fake, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I get all that. I've said that myself. And yeah, all right, sure. People try to sell van life like it's the best thing in the world. And in some ways, it is. It isn't all a lie. But like everything, there are drawbacks. And there are things that people encounter during van life that maybe they didn't expect. So let's talk about some of those things. Number one, you will never, never be done building your van. Even if you bought a pre-made van, you're still not gonna be done with it. You are always going to be building your van. You're always going to be improving it. You're always going to be buying new curtains and cupboards and putting in more hooks and changing things out and wishing you had a bigger refrigerator. Just plan on that. You are going to work for months to build out your van, or you're going to buy one that's already built out, and then you're going to have an hour where you're like, wow, this is great, everything's perfect. And then after that, for the rest of your life, you're going to be either planning on changing things or actually changing them. It's fine. It's normal. It's one of the joys of van life. You can continually improve and change things as much as you want. I mean, if you're the kind of person who is happy with the way things are, maybe that won't happen to you. But I think for most people, it's a reality. Number two, your temperature <laughs> is not your own. And by that, I mean that, hey, we're living in the 21st century. Most people in the United States anyway, and in, in the developed world, have grown up in climate-controlled environments. Hey, it's 75 in here. It's a little warm. Could you turn the AC down or it's a little hot? Could you turn it up? However, you have this dial on the wall that lets you change the temperature by one degree and then it pretty much stays there. You can just forget about that in a van. 
I don't care how fancy your van is. I don't care what kind of heat you have. I don't care what kind of air conditioning you have, which is probably none. You are not going to be able to control the temperature like you can inside a house. And that's one of the reasons I say that most people who are successful at van life are also successful at camping because that is a key aspect of camping. The environment decides what temperature you're gonna be in and it's much that way in a van. So just know that you're gonna to have to learn to be comfortable in a range of temperatures. Now for me, that range is about 55 to 80. Now maybe 85 if it's during the day, but at night, 55 to 80 is about the range of temperature I can sleep in without trying to cool things down somewhat. It may vary for you, but know that that's going to happen. And that's why we spend time installing heaters and fans and insulation and stuff. You can have the best insulated van in the world, the best heating system, and even an air conditioner, and the temperature will still vary a lot because you're in a van that's baking in the sun or freezing outside. It's just not the same as a house. And anybody who has an RV will tell you that their air conditioning isn't quite the same as it is in a house. It, it just isn't. Number three, everything in a van takes longer. Well, maybe not everything, but a lot of things do. Doing the dishes, making the bed, cooking, all those kind of things take a bit longer because you've got different restrictions on things. For example, you're not gonna have a huge double sink and a dishwasher to do dishes in. You're probably gonna have one sink. I mean, you might have two. You might decide that's a priority for you, but chances are you're gonna have one and you're gonna have to do dishes in that sink and it's gonna take extra time. You're also going to have to cook on one burner maybe, or two. Mostly it's because you simply don't have the space you have in a house. You have to be tidy and organized in a van, else you are driving around in, well, the way my rig is right now, which is basically just a van full of junk. And it's, it's miserable. I mean, some people don't mind it, but holy cow, I really need to be a lot neater and cleaner in a van. And that means it just takes longer. You think about it in a house, you flush the toilet, you don't have to think about it. You use the toilet in a van, that is not the end of the story. No matter which method you use, you still have another step, and that is getting it out of the van. So just know that everything takes just a little bit longer in a van. Number four, this is a good thing. Having less stuff lets you do more. Now, a lot of people are attracted to van life because of minimalism. They want to get rid of stuff, but not everybody. Some people want to pack their van full with as much stuff as they possibly can. They want to be ready for everything. You'll see these vans driving down the road. They've got a big roof rack on and they're towing a ski mobile and there's extra tires and chains and recovery boards and a bicycle and a sailboat all tied to the roof. It's fine. Van life is what you want it to be. But know this, there is something about minimalism that is very worth paying attention to. And that is having less stuff lets you do more. I know it's counterintuitive, but you will see. If you have one knife, your decision-making is a lot easier. You're gonna use that knife. In my condo at home, I've got four computers. Four. I don't need four computers. I just have them. I don't know why. And then some days I'm like, God, which computer has that file on it? Or which one should I use to edit this video? Or I don't have that problem in the van. I've got one computer. That's the one I use. That type of thing multiplies. It adds to the freedom of being in a van. You don't have as much stuff 
to consider. It's a good thing. Number five, living in a van still costs money. Now, I know a lot of people choose van life to save money on rent and on taxes, and it seems like, wow, I can live for free. You can't. There is no free lunch. Living in a van has expenses, and some of those are different than the expenses that you would have in a house. For example, if you have a job on the internet, your internet costs are going to go way up if you live in a van. Sure, you can go to Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever, but you're going to rapidly find that you do not want to be beholden onto others for your internet. And so you're going to need some form of cellular internet. And if you want it to be reliable, it's going to be expensive like $100 or $200 a month. In fact, I recommend that people budget $200 a month for internet if you're going to be working on the road. And, and it can get higher than that. You may want to buy a WeBoost, which can be $350, $400. That lets you get Wi-Fi signals from farther away and cellular signals, which is important. So do your budget. Figure out how much it's going to cost you. You're going to be spending a lot more money on your vehicle. Not only gas, but maintenance. So... It is not free, but it can be fairly frugal. Number six, this is one that I have never heard anybody mention. If you are living in your vehicle, somebody can always drive up on you. And by that I mean, you're always gonna be attached to a road. Now, when I'm in my condo, if I'm having a lazy afternoon and I don't want anyone to bother me, I hop on the couch, shut the door, lock it, and then nobody can get to me. But in my van, no matter where I go, somebody else can always drive to where I am. That's what it means to have a vehicle. Someone else can also get there. And there's a sense of you can never be private if you're in a van simply because other people can show up where you are. This will be quite apparent when you start sleeping in BLM areas or public campgrounds where you start to, start to jockey for campsites. And then sometimes for no reason at all, You'll have 800 acres to camp in, but somebody will want to camp right next to you. And they probably do that because they want to know where is a safe place to camp, and they figure you've already figured that out. That feeling can get old, but the nice thing is, is that you can always drive away. Number seven, hey, just because you live in a van doesn't mean you can't do other things. You can go on a cruise. You can go on vacation. You can go to the movies. You can go to an art museum. I mean, basically all the stuff you do in normal life, you can still do in a van. Just because you live in a van doesn't mean you have to drop out of everything you did. If you want to take Taekwondo classes, great, you can do that. Nobody will know that you live in a van unless you want them to. There are no restrictions. The only restrictions maybe are, well, it would be hard to host a big Thanksgiving dinner in the winter, like say in Maine, that might be a little tricky, but even that could be doable. So don't feel like van life is going to be all encompassing. You can do almost all the same things you do in quote unquote normal life if you're living in a van. Number eight, this is kind of a big one. Society doesn't really know what to do with you and you're gonna encounter odd barriers all the time. Living in a van means you are not where people expect you to be. You are kind of an anomaly. Society is built around people living in houses or apartments, staying in one place and always being there. That's where they get mail. That's where they can get a knock on the door. That's where they can store things, that kind of a thing. When you're mobile all the time, everything falls apart. 
You're not paying property taxes, for example. If somebody wants to send you a certified letter, where do they send it to? How do you sign for it? There are all these little issues like that that can end up being a big problem in some cases. For example, let's say you live in Massachusetts and you're gonna spend the summer in Arizona and then, oh, something happens and there's a certified letter going to you and it's super important. Well, you're days away from whatever your legal address is. There are ways around all this stuff, but know that you are going to have to do a few gymnastics just to deal with the fact that society is not set up for people living in vehicles. Number nine, this is also a good thing. You are going to be more mindful of what it takes to be alive. When you're living in a house or an apartment, you've got a place to put trash. You've got a toilet that flushes. You've got water that comes out of the tap. You've got natural gas, maybe. You've got heat that you just set the temperature. All this stuff happens automatically. You don't have to think about it. But in the van, you always have to think about it. You're responsible for it. You want to turn on the heat? Great. Do you have enough gas? Do you have enough diesel? Where are you going to get it if you run out? Oh, you've got two, three bags of trash. What are you going to do with those? Well, you got to find a place to put them. Oh, your toilet's full. Now what? All these kind of things will make you more mindful of how you're living. Suddenly, when you go to the store, you start thinking about the packaging that you're going to have to deal with rather than just the food. Or you may start thinking about how much water to boil because, hey, boiling water takes fuel and maybe you can get away with less water than is recommended in the recipe. All these little things will make you feel more connected with life. It makes you more present or mindful. And number 10, most important of all, one that always needs to be pointed out, it doesn't have to be permanent. You can try van life and then leave van life. You can do it part-time like I do. You can do it for six months out of the year. Maybe every winter you'll do van life in the summer, but then you're gonna live in a house up north somewhere. You get to decide how long you wanna do van life. It is not a permanent decision. Even if you sell all your belongings and sell your house, you can still stop doing van life if you decide not to. You can always rent an apartment later and you can always get more stuff. So hey, this is just trying to get you to be a little bit realistic about what to expect with van life. It's all good. It's all good stuff. Everything can be overcome. But you don't need to be negatively surprised more than you have to. Tech Talk. So I've been working on this weird little project for a while now, and that is, how do you make ice in a van? Now, obviously I know you can get a fridge or a freezer and make ice, that's fine. But how do you make ice while you're moving? Because you see, the problem is water won't stay where you put it in a moving vehicle. If you put an ice cube tray in your freezer and you move around, that water's not gonna stay there. So what do you put the water in? Well, my first experiment was with this bucket thing. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, and for those watching the video, it's this thing. But uh, it's kind of a pain in the butt to use. It takes up a lot of space, and I am not terribly happy with it. I do like the ice cubes it makes, but I do not think it is a good solution for van life, so I'm not using that. I did find something that works better. Now, if you're not a fan of single-use plastics, and really nobody should be a fan of single-use plastics, this is not a great solution because, in fact, it is a single-use plastic. But boy, it's pretty effective. 
it is a bag that you fill with water and it makes ice cubes. It's a very strangely designed bag. It's basically a big baggie with all these little compartments in it. And when you fill it up, the compartments make ice cubes, or ice cube shapes. And then there is this backflow preventer thing. You don't seal it or anything, is that when you fill it with water, this compartment fills up and it actually seals it. It's pretty ingenious. And after it's full, you just lay it flat in your freezer and it freezes. And it's okay if the van moves around. And you end up with this basically blister pack of ice cubes and you just pop them out one at a time when you want to use them. It's kind of perfect. If you want three ice cubes for your drink, you just pull this thing out and go pop, pop, pop. And then there's three ice cubes in your drink. So I will have a link to this in the show notes as well. And again, I understand the single use plastic thing, but it's not that much plastic. And I think it's kind of worth it to have some ice in the van, but you make your choice there. So again, link in the show notes if you want to pick some of these things up. It's like a hundred bags for a few dollars. It's not a big deal. And I am completely interested in hearing what your solution is for this. If you have a better idea for how to make ice in a van, and I don't mean by having a separate ice maker, I mean making ice in your own freezer in the van, drop me a line at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Product review. So this is a very strange thing, but it's cheap and it's useful, and I think you should be aware of it. I just installed a new battery in this rig here. It's a big 200 amp hour lithium battery, but I don't have any way to monitor it. I mean, yeah, it has a BMS, but I can't see what the BMS is doing. I have not installed a shunt in a fancy power meter and I may not. I mean, those things are expensive and they tend to fight with the charge controller I have, it turns out. But hey, I do want to know what the voltage is and I want to know if amps are going in or out. I mean, that's basically what I want. I want to be able to tell how much it's charging or discharging. And the device you use to tell whether something's charging or discharging is called an ammeter. You'd think it would be called an amp meter, but no, it's ammeter. So, okay. Now, Traditional ammeters, like the kind you used to find in cars, would basically interrupt the power from the battery to the rest of the car, and that would allow it to tell which way the amps were going, into the battery or out of the battery. And if you're driving, you would expect it to be, if you used to see these gauges, they would say D on one side and C on the other. You would want it to be closer to the C, not too close. If it was too close to the C, that meant your battery had died somehow. And if it was ever in the D while you were driving, well, that meant your alternator was dead. But wiring one of these things up is complicated. It uses heavy wires. And I didn't want to do anything that invasive. But I found this other thing that works really well. It is called a Hall Effect Ammeter. Paul, H-A-L-L, is somebody's name. He's the guy who discovered this effect. And that is that if you take a magnet, and a donut-shaped magnet, and put it around an electrical wire, well, a magnetic field is created and that magnet will change based on the current going through and you can measure it. So you don't even have to cut any wires. You run your power wire through this thing and it can tell you whether the amps are going in or going out and it can tell you the voltage. Now the one I got, and I'll have a link in the description, is a piece of crap. It's cheap, it was like $13, but it's exactly what I wanted. It's a very simple LED gauge 
that has three digits on it and it alternates between volts and amps. This thing is super ridiculously simple. There's a button on the back to change modes, but if you mount it, you can't get at that. So you basically have to choose volts, amps, or volts and amps alternating. And so that's what I chose. Also, when it's showing amps going out of the battery, it doesn't have a negative sign. It has a little period, which is confusing. But it works. I can tell that my charge controller is working. I can tell how much solar power I have coming in, and I can tell if I'm discharging. For example, today I was at a rest area and I noticed I had nine amps of power coming in from the solar panels. That was great. And that does the math for you. It takes the amps going in minus the amps going out. For example, I was running the refrigerator and that was using some amps. And this thing just basically did the math. But then it started raining. And then suddenly I was discharging three amps which makes sense because the refrigerator was running and I had lost all my solar production. That's exactly the kind of information I want. And this thing offers that in the simplest possible way. So I'll have a link in the show notes for this thing. For 13 bucks, I think it's at least good as a diagnostic tool. When you're first setting up your rig, installing one of these can help you make sure everything's right. And then if you want to get the fancy one with the shunt, go ahead and add it later. But I'm going to recommend these. In fact, you could even get two one that showed amps all the time, and one that showed volts. And you can have yourself a nice panel there. Also, another weird little thing about the Hall effect. If you're measuring small currents, you can actually loop the wire through a few times and it just multiplies. So if you had little tiny current and you wanted to amplify the effect so you could measure it, well, yeah, you could do it three times and you'd get three times the measurement, which you'd have to do the math for on your own afterwards. Anyway, cool little thing, check it out. Tales from the road. I was driving a flatbed Ford. <laughs> I wasn't slowing down to look at anybody. This was a big old Ford. I think it was like a B700. Uh, it was probably a late 70s truck. And it had electric brakes. I don't know whatever happened to electric brakes, but the idea was that when you stepped on the brake pedal, you weren't actually applying hydraulic pressure to the brakes you were applying electric pressure to the brakes. And, you know, it worked, it was fine, but there was a problem. And I found out what that problem was. Now, I worked for a company called Native Plants Incorporated at the time, they're long gone. But this was a truck we inherited from one of our agricultural divisions. And it basically sat around most of the time. The only thing we used it for was towing a very large tractor we had. So that is to say that the maintenance was not great. And it had trouble running, basically. You'd start it up and it would chug along, and then die on you. And it just happened and it was fine. Again, we weren't relying on this thing for long distances. It was just to move the tractor from one field to another. But I learned the hard way that electric brakes require a little thing called electricity. And that if you have a poorly maintained truck, well, electricity isn't guaranteed. I started the truck up, hooked it up to this very large John Deere tractor we had, and went down a small hill towards the next field. And there's a light at the bottom of the hill, and there was a car stopped at the light. So I did what anybody would do. 
I stepped on the brakes, expecting the truck to stop. It didn't. All it did was go probably the most annoying buzzing sound in the world. And that buzzing sound meant that the truck had stalled and, oh, by the way, you don't have any brakes. Yeah, I stepped on the brakes and it kept rolling. Nothing happened. Now, fortunately, this truck did have emergency brakes, which I instantly threw. And I don't know what the mechanism was, but it locked up the wheels instantly. And so I wasn't exactly stopped, but I was at least making flat spots on the tire as I skidded inevitably towards this car parked right in front of me. Well, fortunately, being a young person in my 20s and having some reflexes, I realized that it would be better to do something other than hit the car in front of me. And so I grabbed the wheel and spun it and jackknifed the truck and the tractor, which was the right thing to do because I skidded to a stop about a foot from the car in front of me. And I found out afterwards there was a baby on board. So, uh, what is the lesson to be learned from this tale? Maintain your vehicles and electric brakes are probably a stupid idea. A place to visit. Fall is coming up here and towards November time, there's something my wife and I do fairly often, which is we go to Indiana to see the Sandhill Cranes. Sandhill Cranes are these tall birds. They're like herons, but they're, they're not herons. They're more northerly, and they make weirder noises. And every fall, they gather in very large numbers and land in very specific places. They basically all land in one field in northern Indiana, and you can go see them. And there's not a couple hundred there's 20,000 of them in a field at once, making all these strange noises. Here's the noises they make. Yeah, and sometimes you hear them flying over. I actually have another video of them at the Indiana Dunes State Park as they were flying over. That was in the spring. But in the fall is where they really gather. Now, one of the most famous places is called the Jasper Pulaski Observation Area. Again, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check it out. It's in northwestern Indiana, not too far from Chicago, maybe an hour, hour and a half. And it's a lot of fun to just go there, stand in the observation area, and watch all these cranes. If you do this, I do recommend you bring some recording equipment because it's fun. But also, bring some binoculars so you can check out what they're doing. It's a lot of fun to see them all gathered there and to then see another one circling the field looking for a place to land and then come down for a landing like a long-lost fighter finding its aircraft carrier in the sea. So, again, I'll have a link in the show notes, Jasper Pulaski Sandhill Crane Observation Area in northwestern Indiana. Resource recommendation. Well, folks, the country's on fire. California just closed all of its natural areas to visitors. All national parks, all national forests, all national campgrounds, everything closed. Get out, it's on fire or it will be soon. It's a really bad year and it seems like every year has been a really bad year lately. So how do you find out what's closed and what isn't? Well, there's a great website that has been set up just for tracking this stuff. And uh, it's called Firewatch. You can see it at nwcg.gov. That's nwcg.gov. Basically, it's a map, like Google Maps or whatever. You type in where you want to check out, 
it'll show you all the active fires in the area and then ranges where it's expected to spread. And I think it's a pretty good resource to have around these times. I'm heading to Gardner, Colorado area and heck, I figured I'd better check it out. And sure enough, there are fires not that far away from Gardner. Now Gardner appears to be safe. It's a very mountainous area. The, the fires are predictable and uh, they don't think it's gonna go to Gardner. So I'm gonna continue my trip but I'm gonna watch that website and see what the heck's going on. So the full URL is inciweb.nwcg.gov and you can check it out. Take a look, make yourselves familiar with it, especially if you're out west and you can see just how bad things are and avoid getting caught in it. Well, folks, thank you for listening to episode 90 or maybe watching it. I would love to have some feedback about what you think about this YouTube podcast kind of mashup. If it works, I'll keep doing it. If there's something I can fix, I want to fix it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Cora Brooks. Forgive these words. They are not birds.